Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Book of Acts, chapter 10. Now, if you remember, Scott was originally going to preach on the crucifixion this Sunday and then for, in light of Good Friday, and the next Sunday we will have an Easter sermon, but um, things were a little bit out of order, so we are now going backwards in time. So, if you've been here, we're going back to Cornelius and Peter. Do you remember them? So, we've spent a couple weeks on them already. This will be number three. I think this will be our last week on the story, although honestly, it deserves more. But I, well, I think this will be it, the third sermon on Cornelius and Peter. Just to sort of remind you what's happening on the small scale, I don't have any maps today, but if you remember, Peter was in Joppa, which was 30-plus miles south of Caesarea, where Cornelius was, a Roman centurion. And uh, Cornelius was a devout man, but not a convert to Judaism. And he was praying to the God of Israel. An angel appears, says, you need to send people to go find Simon, Simon Peter. He's got a message for you. He sends people off the 31-mile journey. They travel it pretty quickly. They get to Peter. Right as they get to Peter's house where he's staying with Simon the Tanner, Peter goes into a trance, has a vision, giant uh, blanket essentially comes down out of the sky, almost like a sail, comes down out of the sky full of animals, clean and unclean animals. And the Lord tells him to rise, kill, and eat. He refuses three times. The Lord keeps telling him that what God has called clean, do not call common. And then he follows them to Cornelius' home. He says, basically, why am I here to Cornelius? Cornelius says, you've got a word for us that we need to hear to be saved. Peter preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his family are radically converted. And the, the shocking thing of this story is that Cornelius is baptized and brought into the church as a Gentile, not as a Jew. And this may, to us today, this sounds like, why are we even discussing this? But this has absolute ramifications. If you are a Gentile today, uh, we may have one or two who are ethnically Jewish, but those of us who are Gentiles, who are not Jewish, this story is the open door for why you are a Christian. So, this story matters for you, uh, especially because this is the first time, in principle, God opens the door for the Gentiles to flock into the kingdom. So, remember, Peter emphasize, I mean, excuse me, Luke emphasizes the importance of this story by telling it in its entirety twice, 10 and 11 of Acts, and then they tell it again in chapter 15. So, just like Paul's conversion told three times in Acts, Paul's conversion and Cornelius' conversion, I would argue, are probably the two most important events in the book of Acts as far as conversions go. These are crucial to understanding how redemptive history works. So, we're going to start in Peter's sermon to Cornelius. We'll read the end of it, and then we'll get to hear Peter retell the story. I hope we're all on the same page. This is Acts 10, 34. Peter's just arrived to speak to Cornelius, the Gentile, and his home, his family. Here's what we see. Acts 10, 34. This is the word of the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To Him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days in a Gentile's house. Chapter 11, verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven." And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in which we were, excuse me, in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, those are Jewish Christians, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, I want to take a moment to try to get us further oriented for some of the things we've talked about recently and even further back in the past. So, we're going to do a Bible study today. I mean, it's always a Bible study, but we've got a lot of passages to look at. So, hold your spot in Acts and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20. You know it's going to get serious when the first text is Leviticus 20. So, turn there with me if you don't mind, Leviticus chapter 20. And I want to remind you from a couple of weeks ago uh, some things about Israel that are strange to us, but were not so strange to them at the time. So, one, the first thing I want to talk about is Israel's Old Testament distinctiveness, Israel's Old Testament distinctiveness. Remember, God picks Israel and says, I want to bless you. 
I want you to keep my law, my Torah from Mount Sinai. You're my special chosen people. And I want you to be a nation of priests, which means, I hope we're starting to kind of get this into our bloodstream now, I've mentioned it a lot, Israel is to reflect God's character by obeying His law, to be holy as He is holy. If Israel did that, God would have blessed them in the marketplace, blessed them in the fields, blessed them over their kneading boards, blessed them in the home, blessed them outside, inside, all over. God was going to bless them, Deuteronomy said. And they would have become a blessing to all nations. And all the pagan peoples who worship false gods would see Israel has the one true God, Yahweh, and the nations would have streamed to Israel, they would have received the Word, and that is what Israel was meant to do. But did Israel do that successfully? No, instead they became like the nations around them, worshiping false gods. But one of the ways that's strange to us that God called Israel to be distinct was in their diet. Just to remind you, look at this passage, Leviticus 20, look at verse 23. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. That's moral evil. Verse 25, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold uh, unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So here's the thing you see. If they have to observe these strange to us, clean and unclean food laws, you know what it's going to prevent them from doing? They're not going to be able to share meals with Gentiles. Because if you go have a meal with a Gentile at the Gentile's house, it's inevitable that you will probably risk eating something ceremonially unclean. You know, the salad, you've noticed a bacon bit at the bottom, and you're like, oh no, I've done it. So you can't take a risk of eating a meal with a Gentile because you're bound to eat some kind of unclean meat or food. And so the Israelites would not even risk it. They would not share meals with, with Gentiles for the most part. This was by God's design to keep them separate from the nations. Here was another thing. If you turn to the right to Deuteronomy chapter 7, Turn a few books to the right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Another thing that happens if you observe the dietary laws, I mean, think about it. If your family is eating with a Gentile family, it is likely that over time it's possible intermarriage could happen between those who do not believe in the one true God and those who do. And so you could end up having a kind of syncretism where your children marry someone who worships the Philistine god Dagon and you worship Yahweh, and what happens? Your grandkids are worshiping Dagon and Yahweh, and we can't have… that is not going to be helpful for anyone. So, look at Deuteronomy 7 verse 3. God adds this, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and He would destroy you quickly. Now, do you see here? God wants Israel separate, set apart, holy, other, distinct from the nations, not because they're supposed to lord it over the nations and say, we're so much better than you. God chose us. He didn't choose you, Edom. He didn't choose you over there, Philistines. He didn't choose you, Egyptians. He chose us. We're, we're the best. No, 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 no. God chose them from the nations for the nations. They were meant to use their special status to bless the nations, to invite the nations in. I'll just transfer here. For us today, as God's chosen people in the New Covenant era, we are not supposed to be, oh, we're the chosen of God, and kind of, you know, we're pretty great. The world 
It's just all messed up, and we got it all figured out, and we're pretty awesome. That's not the point. We are to hold to the truth with humility, but we have the truth. We're distinct from the world for the world. Uh, Jesus says, be in the world in the same prayer you were reading, Jerry, in the world, but not of the world. We are, we are in the world for the world, but we are not to be corrupted by the world, the flesh, and the devil as we live there. So Israel was meant to be distinct, and the dietary laws would help them in that way. Now, if I can really stretch your memory back to like, you know, Acts chapter 1 and 2, which seems long ago when we were there. I spent some time talking about how the prophets predict the future for Israel, okay? And one of the things we talked about were some of the things that Isaiah and Ezekiel predict for the future. And I argued, I won't go through all the passages, that I've got a bunch of passages written down, but we've talked about them in the past. I'll just refresh your memory from a few months ago. Isaiah promises in Ezekiel that the exiles of Israel will come back home, that God will pour out His Spirit on them, Ezekiel 36. So he will bring the exiles, he'll pour out his spirit on them, he will renew Israel. And then Ezekiel 37, like the valley of dry bones, they will come back to life through his spirit. And then Ezekiel 37 says, the stick of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and the stick of Judah, the southern kingdom, will become reunited under David, the son of David, the, the true Messiah. We're told that the, the, this will be a community of the spirit in Isaiah 32. We're told that the Davidic kingdom will begin to be rebuilt, Isaiah 9 that the people of the Lord will turn back to Him, and that the outcasts, including the eunuchs, will be included in this. Now, I am arguing, and not all Christians agree, I want to be clear, not all Christians are going to agree with this next point, but I am increasingly persuaded it is true, and I want to persuade you. So, so th think about this. Test this with Scripture. If you don't think it's biblical, then don't believe it, but, but test it with Scripture. I am, I am increasingly persuaded that Luke is framing his, his gospel and the book of Acts especially as this is the beginning of the reunification of Israel in the church, okay? Th that's what I think is happening. So, how does Luke start his gospel? He references all these promises of Isaiah, and what happens? Acts chapter 2. What did Ezekiel say? I will bring the exiles from the nations back to home. What, it ha what happens at Pentecost? The Jews of the dispersion from all those nations, remember Pentecost, all the nations around Israel, all those Jews come back home. And what happens? The son of David has been put on his throne, throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he pours out the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out on Israel. Peter calls this group the whole house of Israel in Acts 2. That phrase is rare. Ezekiel loves to use it in Ezekiel 36 and 37 with the reunification of Israel. What happens next? Well, as the gospel explodes in Jerusalem and Judea, you get to Acts 8 and the gospel goes to Samaria. Do you remember? Samaria is Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And suddenly there's unity between the northern and southern kingdoms in Jesus the Messiah. The two sticks have been brought together. I'll, I'll read you uh, so, someone else on this. This is a Tom Schreiner, who's one of my favorite New Testament commentators on the planet, here's what he says. Just so you know, I'm not the only person saying this, okay? Ezekiel prophesied that there would come a day when the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah would become a single stick. The unification of Samaria with Judea and Galilee constitutes the fulfillment of the promise in Ezekiel, and the one king who will rule over all of them is Jesus. Since they are cleansed from their sins through Jesus, my servant David will be king over them, they will have one shepherd over them all. And in Acts, the servant David is Jesus Christ, and God dwells with His people in this time through His, through His Spirit. I'll just read you a few quotes here from other people. Uh, in R.C. Sproul's study Bible, the Reformation study Bible, 
he speaks about the, the Cornelius and his family speaking in tongues in Acts 10 and 11. This is what R.C. Sproul's study Bible says. This shows, when they speak in tongues, this shows that the spirit of prophecy promised in Joel 2 at Pentecost is a prophecy about Israel's blessing that began to be fulfilled at Pentecost in believing Jews and is also being fulfilled in Gentiles. Thus, they are also becoming true end-time Israel in fulfilling this prophecy about Israel. This is why some Jewish bystanders are amazed they see a prophecy intended for Israel being fulfilled among Gentiles. Okay? Got... I'll give you one more. This is from G.K. Beale, another uh, scholar from Westminster Seminary. Here's what he says. The general Old Testament expectation is that Gentiles in the end times who desire to become part of the nation of Israel will take on the physical covenantal badges that identify them as true Israelites. But when we turn to the Gospels and Acts, we learn that Gentiles gain admittance into the covenant community by faith in the risen Christ. It is not fully revealed in the Old Testament that Gentiles would become part of true Israel by faith alone without adhering to Israel's national badges or signs, external indicators that demarcate them as part of God's chosen people group. Gentiles now identify with Jesus, not Israel's law, to become true Israelites. Okay, so, so just trying to put flesh on what this is all talking about. Luke has Israel reconstituted, the northern and southern kingdom united in Christ, and then after that has happened, the next agenda, according to the Old Testament, is that we reach the nations, the Gentiles. So, the next story in Acts is Cornelius and his household. And here's the main thing I want to get at. Well, before, before I'm getting ahead. The chapters just before, chapter 8 of Acts, remember, Isaiah has been promising. When Israel is restored, he says the foreigners and the eunuchs will be included. Isaiah 56. That's a rare verse. Eunuchs are not talked about that often, okay, in the, in the Bible. So, the eunuchs will be brought in to God's renewing of Israel. Well, why, does, why is Luke the only author other than Matthew to mention eunuchs in the whole New Testament? Why is it as Israel's being restored, a eunuch is brought in in Acts 8 and he's converted? Because this is Israel's end-time renewal promised in Isaiah where the outcasts and the eunuchs are brought in. Israel's reconfigured in Jerusalem. The exiles are there. The northern and southern kingdom are, co are combined in Christ, the son of David. He's on the throne of David in heaven, and now we've got to reach the nations. That, that's the story. That's the plot line of the book of Acts. And what you will see here is another fascinating thing. This was brand new to me a while back. You ever wondered why in the book of Acts, Christianity is not called Christianity until the end of chapter 11? What's it called? It's called with a W, the way. You know what Isaiah calls the renewing of Israel in Isaiah over and over? The way of holiness, the way of the Lord. They will walk upon the way to the new Jerusalem. Isaiah, if you look up the word, the Greek word, the way in, in, Exodus, in Isaiah, you will see over and over and over, Isaiah calls the renewal of Israel walking on the way of holiness, on the way of holiness, the way to Jerusalem, the way, the way, the way, the blind will be led on the way. He says it over and over and over. What do they call Christianity in the book of Acts? The way. This is the renewal of Israel that Isaiah promised. It's, to me, it's just increasingly clear that that is what Luke is presenting it as. This is the way. And Jesus is the way, and this is the way to the renewal that God had promised in Isaiah. It's, very, it's interesting to even see, literally, Jesus heal blind people and take them on the way in the Gospels. I almost wonder if there's an Isaiah illusion going on as that is all said. And you say, okay, well, what, what, are we, what are we to make of all this? Well, turn with me back to chapter 10 of Acts. I want to talk about Cornelius speaking in tongues here a little bit more. 
So remember, the, the big turning moments in Acts, Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 10 and 11. Why are those big moments? Those are times where groups of people first receive the Spirit as a group, and then they, for, they bear witness that they have the Spirit by doing miraculous speech, which is uh, tongues and prophecy. What happens first is Acts 2. So remember, I know I'm kind of all over the place. Just hang with me here. I'm trying, okay? So in Acts 2, the Pentecost, right before that begins, what happens? They have to replace Judas. Why? Because they need 12 and 11 to start the new Israel. Why do you need 12? 12 tribes, 12 apostles. So they have to replace Judas, and now they're ready for Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out, and the first time anyone is brought into the body of Christ in the New Testament, it's all Jews. Every single one of them is a Jew. And what happens? They bear witness by speaking in tongues. The renewal of Israel has begun. They show witness to that by speaking in tongues and prophesying. The next time tongue speaking happens, or probably, it seems to be indicated, is in Acts 8. It seems to be implied. They speak miraculously. In Acts 8, who's speaking? Miraculously, the Samaritans. So now you have the next level. You had Jews, full-blooded Jews brought into the church. They bear witness with tongues. Now you have the half-Jews, half-Samaritans brought into the church. They bear witness by speaking in tongues. Now you have the first Gentiles brought in. How do we know the Spirit is filling the Gentiles and bringing them into the renewal of Israel? They speak in tongues just like the Jews did at Pentecost. They have the same gift of the Spirit that they did. So look with me at verse 44 of Acts 10. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that's all Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, when you first come into the church building, is it called an atrium? Is that the name of this little room right here? And then you come into the main room? Is that an atrium? What's the foyer? Thank you. Foyer. Okay, I'm going to use the, the building as an illustration. And clearly, I should have worked more on my words here. The foyer. So, um, uh, picture this, okay? This, this is, I think, the way everybody was, every Jewish person, I think, was thinking this was the future for Israel when Jesus goes back to heaven. This is what I think they're thinking as Pentecost happens. They're thinking this. We know the Old Testament promises Israel will be restored. That's crystal clear in the Old Testament prophets. We also know for sure Gentiles will be blessed by Israel. So Gentiles will be blessed as Israel is restored. For sure. That, that was not controversial. That Gentiles will be included was clear in the Old Testament. What was not clear was how Gentiles would be included. You get the difference? That they would be included, not that controversial. That's clear. How they would be incorporated into this end-time blessing of Israel was not apparently clear. I can say that because in Ephesians 3, Paul talks about this very issue of Gentiles being included in Christ. And he says, I tell you a mystery. The Greek word mystery is not a Sherlock Holmes word. Like, oh, this is so mysterious. How could this murder have happened? That's not what mystery means in the New Testament. It means something uh, that was previously revealed, but not fully, and is now more fully revealed. My favorite analogy would be like if you're in a dark room, all the lights are off, and there's just one beam of light or one candle on. You can sort of see the room, but then you turn on the full lights, and you, now you can really see the room. The mystery is something that's partially hidden in the Old Testament and made clear. The lights are turned up in the New Testament. Here is the mystery, Paul says, that Gentiles are equal heirs with Jews in Christ. See, we knew God was going to renew Israel. We knew He was going to bless the Gentiles. We did not know how, and the answer was 
He was going to obliterate the distinction between Jew and Gentile in a major way, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, and that Jews who believe in Jesus and Gentiles who believe in Jesus are one in Christ. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew or Gentile. We are all one in Christ, all offspring of Abraham together in Christ. That was brand new. That, that understanding of how that would happen was, was new. And so, the illustration of the church building. This is what the Jews were thinking, I believe. Jesus goes to heaven, pours out the Spirit. This is wonderful. What they're thinking is, yes, God's reuniting us in Christ. This is wonderful. The next step is Gentiles are going to come into the church. So, just act like the building is the body of Christ. Okay, I know it's the confu- we shouldn't confuse the building with the body of Christ, but let's just do it for the illustration. This building is the body of Christ, okay, just to be completely wrong. And let's say, what was it called? The foyer? The foyer, okay, so let, let, you got the main double doors, and then you come into the foyer, and you got the next double doors, and then you come into the building, right? This is, I think, the conceptualization of the Jewish people in the first chapters of Acts, including Peter, including the apostles. They didn't get it until 10 and 11. They didn't get it. What they thought was, we in this building are true Orthodox Jews. We don't offer animal sacrifice anymore, but we still eat kosher. We still keep the laws. The Gentiles will one day come into this building. They will one day enter in. You know how they'll enter in? The first double doors coming into the foyer is belief in Christ. They'll come in there, and then they need to fully embrace Judaism. If they want to be part of the people of God, they, they got to come all the way. So, all the men must be first circumcised. Then they need to embrace all the kosher laws all the festivals, and then they need to just commit to that, and then they can come into the, to the actual room. Do you see that kind of, and that's not a perfect analogy, but you see, you got to believe in Jesus, and uh, that, that'll save you. But then you, you've got to, you've got to, if you're going to fully become part of the people of God, you, you go all the way. This story is shocking because Cornelius is filled with the Spirit with clear evidence by speaking in tongues. You can't ignore this. This is the Holy Spirit he's still a Gentile. This blows their categories up. They're thinking, Gentiles, of course, will be included, but they have to become part of us. And the Holy Spirit says, they are part of you without converting to Judaism. You, all you do is put faith in Jesus, and you are a true Jew, Romans 2. A true Jew is not one outwardly, and circumcision is not a matter of the hands and physical act. It's of the heart. Those who are circumcised in their heart are true Jews in Christ. So that is absolutely shocking. Now, you can imagine Peter then… So, Peter eats non-kosher food. By the way, this means when he says he's never eaten anything unclean, that means even Jesus in His ministry did not eat unclean food because Peter would have eaten it with him. Peter, they never, he'd never eaten unclean food. Now, he's in a Gentile's kitchen. He's sitting in their dining room. He's eating unclean food going, this is not right, but I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. And so, he's, he's for the first time ever breaking that, that law, which he's no longer bound by. And uh, look at chapter 11, verse 1. News quickly gets back to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But then Peter explains the entire story, and he shows, you know what he shows? Guys, I didn't make this up. I was almost a passive participant in this. I got a vision from God. Cornelius got a visit from an angel from God. These men came at the exact moment I had my vision. The Spirit told me to go with them. I brought, you know, the Old Testament, you have to have two or three witnesses to establish. He has six 
That's better than two or three. He's got got double what he needs. He's got six Jewish witnesses with him going to Cornelius' house. They all witness the Spirit, baptize these people, fill them with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. Clearly, God has made them clean by faith. How can we leave them out when God has brought them in? I had to baptize them. God left me no choice. Was I going to stand in the way of what God was doing? Listen, this wasn't my idea. I actually resisted the the heavenly vision three times. God said, no, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You're no longer bound by those laws. And so finally, they hear what God has clearly done. And look at verse 17 of Acts 11. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You get what's dawning on them here? See, okay, I'm going to read a quote that's really confusing, and I thought about leaving it out, but I'm going to read it anyway. This is too late in the sermon for a confusing quote. Are you ready? You can, if anybody can do it, it's you guys. You ready? Here we go. I will grant you, this is a, this is a confusing one. Look, this is a good, I, I think this is exactly right. The Cornelius episode in Acts is in a sense the crux of both the mission in Acts to reach the nations and of its ecclesiology. Did I get you on that one? <laughs> it's teaching about the doctrine of the church, what the church is. So the Cornelius episode not only affects our missions, get the nations, it also affects what the church actually is, ecclesiology. The admission of Cornelius' household to baptism by one of the pillar apostles, Peter, without first him being circumcised and committed to the Torah, in principle redefines the nature of the people of God who are thereby no longer simply the Torah-centered Israel of fulfillment, but some transformation of Israel. One more time on that last part. I had to read it like 10 times, so listen one more time. The admission of Cornelius' household to baptism by one of the pillar apostles without prior circumcision and commitment to the Torah, the ceremonial laws, in principle redefines the nature of the people of God who are thereby no longer simply the Torah-centered Israel of fulfillment, but some transformation of Israel. What that means is, if a Gentile as a Gentile, an uncircumcised, unclean Gentile can be purified by faith, not by any adoption of those laws. If he can be baptized and brought into the people of God without the ceremonial law, you know what that means? The Jews don't need those either. What Israel is, is getting redefined around Jesus, the true Israel. So, that this is what Paul will say in Galatians 3. Paul says, when the, when the Old Testament said God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring, he did not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to offspring, singular, referring to one who is Christ. And then he says, we are all Jew or Gentile. We are all male or female, slave or free. We are all one in Christ. We are all the offspring of Abraham, heirs through Christ. Now, do you see what happened here? The boundary marker for the people of God and not the people of God is not ethnic ceremonial law anymore. It's not your ethnic heritage. It's not whether you're born Jewish. It's not whether or not you've been circumcised as a man. It's not whether or not you keep the kosher food laws. The boundary marker between the people of God and not the people of God is now Jesus, faith in Jesus, only Jesus. That's the only boundary marker. So, turn with me to the right. And I've still got a little ways to go today. So, (laughs) prepare yourself. Turn to the right to Ephesians, to, uh, where do I want to go? 
Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, this passage cannot be read too often in this discussion, and I just want to remind you of it in light of this discussion. Ephesians chapter 2. Hear this again. I've read it before. It's worth reading again. Ephesians 2.11. See if you can see what I'm trying to say in this passage. Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you what? Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. You see all the ceremonial laws are right here. The boundary markers are right here. Remember that you were at that time, you Gentiles, before your conversion, were separated from Christ, the Jewish Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in what? Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You hear that? That's the ceremonial law abolished by Christ's death. That He might create in Himself, in Himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Are you hearing this argument here? And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the racial hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, you Jews. For through Him, Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. To what? He just said it earlier, the commonwealth of Israel in verse 12. We're no longer strangers and aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. You are now what? Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the temple, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's not done. Look at 3.1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. What? Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, what mystery? Was made known to me by revelation. Now look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Do you see this? The boundary marker now is the cross. It's Jesus. It's He Himself. It's faith in the Lord Jesus. Turn backwards to Galatians 2, and I I want to just… trying to shed light on a few familiar texts. Look at Galatians 2, and look with me here. See if you remember this little story. Remember when Paul confronts Peter publicly at the church in Antioch? See if it makes a little bit more sense in light of what we're talking about. This is Galatians 2.11. Cephas means Peter. Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas came north up to Antioch, which was a largely Gentile church, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Whoa. For before certain men came from James, back in the church in Jerusalem, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, breaking food laws. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Turn with me again to the right to Colossians chapter 2, and as you turn there, I'll say a word about that story. Do you see what was happening? Peter knew he didn't have to keep the kosher food laws. He knew Gentiles and Jews were one in Christ. So they were sharing the Lord's Supper and meals regularly together at the same table, which would have been a no-no in the Old Testament, but they're no longer under that law. And so Peter's just having a great time. He's got his Gentile Christian friends, his Jewish Christian friends, and they're all eating together, and this is breaking bread together. This is amazing. Well, some Jews in Jerusalem find out about this, and they think this is not good. So they send someone up, they talk to Peter, and Peter becomes afraid of persecution that could come from certain Jews of the circumcision party, and he goes, okay. So he stops eating with the Gentiles. He he and the Jews have a separate table. They eat only kosher food now. They separate from the Gentiles, and Paul says, if you keep living that way, you're telling people the gospel is no longer true. Why? Who cares? Peter, if you say… If you say by your actions that you've got to keep kosher food laws to be a consistent Christian, you're telling Gentiles they have to convert to Judaism to be saved. That's a lie. All they need is Jesus. So what does Paul say three times in verse 16 of chapter 2 of Galatians? Three times, we are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. For it's by works of the law, no one will be justified. We're justified by faith in Christ. His point is, our right standing with God Our membership in Christ's covenant comes alone by faith in Jesus. He is the true Israel of God, the true Son of God, and we are unified with Him, and therefore we are also true Israel in Christ. Which is why, remember, Paul ends that book of Galatians by saying, peace be upon all those who follow this rule, even upon the Israel of God. I made an argument that that's referring to the church because we are the true offspring of Abraham. Now, before I get too worked up here, let me, let me say a side note here. This will come up in a, a sermon, I believe, in chapter 13 of Acts. But I, I'll go ahead. I have to say something now to release the tension. Does that mean that there is no future at all for ethnic Israel? I believe there is a future for ethnic Israel. Uh, let, let me say what I think it is. Just real quick. This is for later, but I have to say something. Romans 11, I am convinced. I don't know how to escape Romans 11. I think it's crystal clear. Romans 11 says that right now we're living in the times of the Gentiles, which means a partial hardening has come on Israel. Most Jews today are not believers, sadly, tragically. Most Jews are not believers in Jesus. They're rare to find a Messianic Jew, right? The church is most prosperous right now in these last 2,000 years amongst non-Jews, Gentiles. It's the time of the Gentiles. But Paul says God did this so that nobody in the world would presume that their ethnicity makes them superior. See, if God would have kept blessing the Jews, they may have thought that their Jewishness made them extra special to God. And God says, no, 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 no. I'll put a partial hardening on you, and I'm going to bring the floodgates open for the Gentiles. We're gonna, Gentiles are just surging into the church now. Hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of Gentiles are coming in from all the nations. And then Romans 11 says, but God still has a promise to save His people, the ethnic Jews. What's going to happen is, right near the end of Christ's return, God, I believe, is going to convert an enormous number of Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people. Romans 11.25 says, after the hardening of the Gentiles, God is going to save all Israel, which I think means the majority of ethnic Jews will be converted. 
but I don't think it means their kingdom in theopolitical terms will be reestablished in this world to do some sort of thing in the millennium, although I know a lot of Christians believe that, and I don't hate those people, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's referring to them being incorporated back into the church through Christ. I don't think there's, a, there's an extra blessing for Israel that's not for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. I believe we are all being incorporated into the blessings of God, the promises of God in Christ. So right now it's the time for the Gentiles to be brought into Christ. In the future it will be the time for the Jews to be brought into Christ. But we're all being brought into the church, the true Israel of God. Colossians chapter 2. These are all 2.11s. I just realized that this morning, Galatians 2.11, Ephesians 2.11, and Colossians 2.11s. That's kind of easy to remember. So, uh, Colossians 2.11, look at this again. I do plan to end not before long. Colossians 2.11, in Him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, true Judaism, right, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through, the faith, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you Gentiles, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of the ceremonial law, food and drink, or with regard to a festival, yearly Jewish feast, or new moons, monthly Jewish feast, or a Sabbath, the weekly Jewish Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay. Summing this crazy sermon up, okay, summing all these things up, the ceremonial law was meant to set Israel apart from the nations for a time, not permanently, until the Messiah came. Jesus was circumcised at eight days old. He kept those laws. He, he keeps God's law perfectly. He dies condemned in our place, buried, raised from the dead, ascended to David's throne at the right hand of God the Father. He pours out the Spirit on the Jewish people in Jerusalem, then on the southern kingdom, then the northern kingdom, and now to the Gentiles. And what He shows us by the Gentiles being brought in without converting to Judaism, He shows us that in time Israel incorporates everyone in by faith in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law, and how do we get in? been saying it over and over. In the Cornelius story, we're told, believe in Jesus for forgiveness, and they repented for new life. They believed for forgiveness, they repented for new life. Let me just put it this way. Faith and repentance is the center of everything here. Faith and repentance are flip sides of the same coin. Some people try to put them against each other. You can believe without having to repent. No. You can repent, change, but not believe. No. Repentance and faith have to go together or you don't have either one. To repent means you're heading towards destruction and sin this way. To repent means you turn around away from idols and sin. Faith means you turn towards Jesus, towards Him as your God and Savior, and you walk towards Him. It's a 180-degree turn away from your former life to a new life. Listen, of course Christians are not perfect, but my goodness, they are different from what they used to be. 
If Jesus has not permanently shaped the direction of your life, if He hasn't given you new loves and longings and desires, new passions and loves, new hopes and new fears, like fearing God and fearing sin, if that has not happened, if there has not been a reorientation of your heart and soul from the core working out into your actions and behavior, you do not yet know the Lord. But the invitation is right here, right now. No matter your background, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your gender, no matter your heritage, no matter anything like that, you can turn with simple childlike faith from your sin, trust in Jesus, and you can be incorporated into the offspring of Abraham, be a true child of the God, the King, and be a co-heir with Christ of the coming kingdom and the renewed earth and the new heavens with a new Jerusalem. It is free for you because it cost Jesus His life. Free gift on the table, eternal kingdom, eternal life with Jesus forever, for free. All it requires is empty hands of faith to say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, not one person in this room has begun to really understand what is true of us in Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is eternal life. Eternal life is that they know you, the Father, and that they know me, the Son whom you have sent. Life is in your name, Lord Jesus. God, help those of us in this room, I I think it's most of us who know you, Help us to be awakened to what is ours in Christ. We are the true children of Abraham. We are yours. We are beloved in Christ. We are the elect of God. We are the bride of Christ. We are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Once we were not a people, now we're the people of God. Therefore, proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness in to His wonderful, marvelous light. God, help us to be faithful priests. We are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, First Peter says. Help us to be priests who rightly represent your holiness to the world, and then pray and plead with the world on, on, to you on their behalf, that we would stand between you and lost people that we love, and that we would invite them in as priests should do. And thank you most of all that, Lord Jesus, you are the great high priest who offered not a lamb without spot, but your own self, your own life without spot or blemish. Thank you that you have made us faultless before God the Father, and that all those shadows in the Old Testament of purity laws point to you, the pure one, the spotless one. And now we find our purity in you with our moral purity and our cleansing from guilt. So God, work among us now as we sing. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.